0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions, ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash word for more details.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: This is The Word podcast. Uh, there's you and me, Fraser, David Hepworth and Fraser Lurie. Hello. Because uh, everybody else is busy. Tell everybody what Mark Ellen was doing in the office just now as you left. I didn't
2: long. notice. What, what was he doing?
0: He was mending a rip in his trousers. It's supposed to be press day. Uh, prior to going to a family funeral. Okay. Um, you want
2: well, you, you to look good for that, don't you? you?
0: Well, you preferably a gaping great. You know fissure in one's trousers. It wasn't his
2: crotch, was it?
0: I, I don't. I didn't actually enquire after the location. Okay. Uh, somebody offered to sew them for him, and I think there was an argument as to whether they were going to be sewn or he was going to use um, sticky-backed plastic. As okay. Used to call it in blue Peter. So you know, we shall no doubt uh, find out in due course. Tis the morning after the European final. Yes, it is. I watched in the pub. I watched it at home. Now you don't like watching things in the pub.
2: No, I don't. I, I like to hear the commentary. I know that you're the opposite. You like the, the commentary to be drowned out
0: by the voices in the pub. I, th- I think I do. I think I do. I've recently taken to this in a big way. I go down to the tiny little pub, quite near me, um, and I have one pint at the first half and one pint at the second half and uh, perch on a stool and watch the many televisions around
2: there's uh, it, There's too much going on in a pub for me. There's too many distractions. I find that I don't get to see the game as I want to see it. I don't get to take it all in.
0: But you see, David, don't you find it... I find it rather frustrating sitting at home watching these things on my own because I sort of want to share it with somebody. Uh, Whereas I like the idea that I'm amongst a crowd of people. Yeah,
2: and I have been in in situations where being in a crowd has been a fantastic thing. The first of the legendary Newcastle Liverpool 4-3s, I was watching in a, a packed pub in Clapham. Which was split between Newcastle fans and Liverpool fans. And it was better than being at the game.
0: Yeah, it, was, sure. it was fantastic. Well, because you see better. I, I, I was, the, uh, when England played Greece in the um, what was it World Cup qualifier or European yes, qualifier? Yes, the one at Old Trafford. Uh, yeah, where, where Beckham scored yeah. with the, the free kick right at the end. Um, I was with Mark Allen, actually, and Barry McElhenny, and various other people who've been on this podcast. Uh, and we were in Paris. For the, uh, for the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, and it was the day before the race. Right. And we went and found an English pub in Paris, of which there aren't that many, and it was packed with kind of uh, English plasterers who were working, <laughs> working in Paris and taking time off to go and see the game, packed into this tiny space. And when that goal went in, you know, pretty much literally a door flew off. You know, just the sheer, the sheer relief of that number of people, packed into that smaller space, all exhaling in
2: yeah. that very all, all wanting the same outcome.
0: All wanting, absolutely. You really felt that, you know, people could move physical objects yeah. by, their, by their sheer desire in those circumstances. Anyway, um, but the right result, I think. Yes, was it right. was. They feedback. deserved to win. Yes, and football was the winner. Uh, lots of feedback uh, to, to last week's podcast, uh, where we were joined by Aris Racinos and Barry McElhenney, we were talking about television. And particularly the ways in which it is commissioned, and uh, various people have been feeding back on the website as to whether they, you know, a lot of people seem to they, they loathe all television at the moment. They think nowadays is a terrible time for television. What do you think?
2: I watch less of it than I ever did. I watch football and I watch DVD box sets and I, I flick occasionally, and never find anything I want. Oh, really? But then I probably don't spend long enough on anything I click on to, discover whether I genuinely like it or
0: not. You see, I find I watch less, but I watch it with more approval than yeah. ever before, because generally, I'll find something that I want to watch. I, I
2: suspect there's more that I'd actually want to watch nowadays than there was ten years ago, but I can't be bothered finding it.
0: There's also, I'm aware of the fact that there are loads of series on TV, both English and American and soaps and, and everything, all the stuff that's on regularly. That I've never seen any of, because nowadays I either want to see all of it or I don't want to see any of it well, at it's all. It's a
2: commitment if you start watching a new series. That's, you know that that's a lot of time out of your life.
0: So ER, I think, finished this week, didn't it? Yes. So you know, having been gone, going, how long? Years,
2: years and years. Ten years, years, and years, years at least. At least.
0: Years. And uh, and everybody says it's really good, and I'm sure they're absolutely right. I've never seen even one. Minute. I
2: watched it religiously early on.
0: Oh right. And, and
2: I, I watched that, and I watched St. Elsewhere, which I think was a kind of similar thing a bit earlier, and Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law, and a lot of those kind of era TV programs. Yeah,
0: yeah. But the thing that people were, were um, responding to in last week's uh, podcast was the kind of, what they perceived to be the, the growing idiocy of television, and, uh, which I don't think is entirely fair. I think what's, what's, go- what's going on in television, which I think was last week's discussion reflected, was the same process that's been going on in loads and loads of areas, which I think they call saming. Have you heard of this? No, tell me. Okay, the classic case of saming in in marketing is a supermarket, okay? So you go into a supermarket, all supermarkets put the vegetables in a certain place, they put the wine in a certain place, they put the chocolate in a certain place, they put the shampoos in a certain place.
2: So if you shop in Sainsbury's and you happen to wander into Tesco's, you know where everything is?
0: Absolutely. Well, it, they don't do it for that reason. But, but that becomes the problem that d- doing it in that way leads them into. Yep. You know, so they adopt best practice, i.e. Veg, fruit and veg near the door. and you know, It just sort of makes sense. Newspapers near the door, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and everybody adopts the same best practice. And as soon as anybody works out a way to do anything slightly better, everybody else copies it really, really quickly. <laughs> But the result, the outcome of this is you don't know whether you're in Tesco's or in Sainsbury's or in Wedro's. Yeah. Which then gives them a huge marketing problem. Now, leaving the world of supermarkets, you can say exactly the same thing has happened in whole areas of the music business. And landfill indie... Yes. ...is the most classic case of saming... Yeah. ...seen, you know, outside the supermarkets, isn't it? You know, me for pallid, you know chaps with guitars who sound roughly a little bit like Snow Patrol, a little bit like The Smiths. And will behave
2: themselves when they go on Soccer AM and that kind of thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, they won't do anything. They'll behave behave along very, very strict rails, won't they? You know, they won't do anything too outrageous. They won't be madly sexy or irreverent or any of those kind of things.
2: No, it's not like getting Sean Ryder on your show. There's no risk involved. There's
0: no risk involved. Absolutely. They're the foot soldiers of of Landfill Indy, you know. So, what, what happens, you know, what used to happen and still happens in, in supermarkets now happens in every area of entertainment. That if you get one successful thing, it's copied and copied and copied. Consequently, the same thing has certainly happened in television. You know, that they've refined what works in a half-hour program. You know, like Aris was talking about, you know, yeah. it's got kind of a bit of jeopardy, it's got kind of a time scale to it. It's going to be a journey. It's got to be a journey. It's got to be all in the title at the beginning, you know. And everybody just, just follows that, uh, you know, that way of doing things. And, uh, and you, you sort of can't blame them, really.
2: What I thought was kind of tragic was the, the situation with the way uh, programs are titled with a view <laughs> to getting them, you know, grabbing your attention on the EPG. Which means that even intelligently compiled,
0: well-produced documentaries are going to have ridiculous titles. Has to be reduced. You know, because everything has to be reduced. Yeah. Because... As there is more and more stuff, people don't have the time. You know, it's like we, we always used to say, you know, a magazine cover has to has to appeal to, forgive us, readers, and this applies to any, any readers of anything, uh, it has to appeal to a moron in a hurry. Because that's all the time you've got to, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. People don't, don't stand over things deliberating about whether they're going to be interested in them or not. No. They tend to take... Very, very quick decisions.
2: And there's a real art to that. I've, I've bought um, issues of Wired magazine, for instance, purely on the basis of a tagline on the cover, which has turned out to be referencing a, a, a three-inch column on page 75 Well, you see, that
0: happens. That happens in magazines all the time. Um, it, in, invariably, the most interesting cover line will always relate to something that's on page 46.
2: And is tiny. And
0: is tiny. And was a complete afterthought... Because what happens is that the editor is usually putting together the cover lines late on in the production process, and it has all the usual stuff, and then goes, oh, that's a bit dull, or that's a bit predictable, or yeah. whatever. Well, how do we get the floating motor? What rotor? can we have to... Anybody got anything wacky, got anything funny, and somebody pipes up, oh, there's a piece on page 43 about, you know, I don't know, I can't think of an example no. right now, you know, rock stars inside leg measurements... Um, and suddenly gets promoted to the cover, and therefore gets promoted in people's minds in importance. Yeah. And the editor is then kicking himself for not having made it important in the first place. And
2: giving it two or three pages. And giving
0: it <laughs> two or three pages. Because it, it's just... I'm sure loads of people who worked in magazines will recognise that syndrome, you know. It happens It happens again and again. Um, this just in... Um, have you seen that that uh, Patti Smith's son... Jackson has been has he got married to Meg White out of the White Stripe. I'd heard about this, yes. They got married. All I'm gonna Lovely. say is all I'm gonna say is Patty Smith, mother in law.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want that.
0: I, oh dear. Les Dawson. Thou should be living at this <laughs> hour, really. Now we uh, prior to starting this, this podcast, we, we solicited from people um, on the, amongst the Twitter aunting on the on the Word Twitter feed uh, things that they suggest that they might like answers to that we could we could discuss here, Fraser. What have we got?
2: Well, for instance, Handsome P. Wonderful, who's a, a regular contributor to, on the website, wants to know what's happened to Young Islington. Where have the sirens gone? It's been all quiet. And g- explain, Has crime stopped? Explain. Well, we've we've just moved to the only room in the building that uh, doesn't have windows or an outside.
0: And we're we're towards the back of the building, so the you know the merry sound of the local constabulary chasing, you know, uh, young oiks, is, is a thing of the past. It's, it's still happening outside. You just don't get anything oh, so It's here. bound to be there. I've got one from Beanie here who wants to know, if they opened a museum to the old Grey whistle test, what <laughs> items of interest would we donate as, as education or entertainment? Well, this isn't a question I can answer, I think. This is one for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think they ought to get Bob Harris's old overflowing ashtray. Because, you know, when I first started going on to, to whistle test as a plugger and so forth, Bob used to sit there in the middle of the studio, uh, swivel chair, and glass-topped coffee table with an overflowing ashtray, because he still smoked in, vision and in those days. You could, yeah. You could absolutely smoke in Vision. It wasn't, it wasn't considered a problem at all. No. And I think I have seen, and I think I, I, maybe go looking on YouTube. I think you might find this. I'm sure I've seen this some very early whistle tests, or possibly even with Richard Williams in them, that actually have people with pints of beer, <laughs> as well as cigarettes. Yeah, those were the days. Th- <coughs> those were those. But it's interesting, I was talking to uh, Mike Appleton, who used to produce Whistle Tests, and prior to that used to work on Late Night Lineup, which was the kind of forerunner of all those programmes, late night BBC Two Arts programme and we we're talking about smoking on television and he said one of the reasons they did it was that uh, they used to go and get guests out of the BBC bar very often at last minute you know so somebody kingsley ames hadn't shown up <laughs> because he was drunk in a ditch somewhere, uh, they'd just nip upstairs to the bar. And Hope someone was in. And they'd be kind of, I don't know, Alan Plater, the TV playwright, or Dennis Potter or somebody around would be around there having a few drinks. Halfway and, through a pint. Oh, and, it certainly would. Yeah, they'd just pop downstairs, you know, live television. Yeah. yeah it's, you know, Smoke them if you got them. Not <laughs> a problem at all. So, what else we got? A
2: uh, question from AF82. Who uh, asked? Given the news of uh, Joanna Lumley and uh, David Van Day from Dollar,
0: is he really standing for parliament? Standing
2: for parliament? That can't be real. He's probably got a new record coming out, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah. Which musicians would you vote for? Which musicians would I vote for? I can't imagine any. Can you? Can I? No. I mean, I think I
2: I kind of think the most you can expect for anyone standing for uh, parliament is that they have good intentions.
0: And a little bit of staying power, I think, is probably power. the most important thing of all. And that's what really I find very disturbing, the public mood at the moment. I find the public mood more disturbing than i found it at any point since the death of Princess Diana. Right. There's this mad English hysterical, sentimental, you know, let's chuck them all out and, you know, how dare they put their hand in my pocket. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's not
2: about that, really, is it? It's about the economy and it's about Iraq and all those kind of things. And it's kind of us getting our own back, and this is the excuse
0: well, I'm not so sure. I, I do think that I'm fed up with just hearing, you know, Vox Pop interviews, where, which people invariably say, well, they're all the same, aren't they? And I think, well, what the hell does that mean? Well, yeah. oh, they're all the same. You know, how dare you insult, <laughs> you know, they put these people in, in that manner, you know? And all right, we'll chuck them all out, start again. And start again with who? Do you see. Do you David see Van millions Day of people queuing up to enter public service? No. Do you see actors laying aside their lucrative careers, you know, to turn up and vote on, on you know, on amendments to, you know, obscure bills no. and to deal with irate constituents? I don't think they'd do it at all. No. You know. well, anyway, what am I talking about? So, no, we wouldn't vote for any musicians <laughs> at all. And uh, that back to black, back to black five, in order to um, distinguish him from the rest of the back-to-back clan. Um, it says, given the option, it's an interesting point, this, given the option, imagine this, Fraser, would you go for all-out but short-lived superstardom or a long-term, enough-to-get-by second-league musician career? What do you think, Fraser?
2: Uh, can I choose neither? Or do I have to choose no, one? you've to choose one. Uh, given that from the age of uh, 13 to 20 i probably drunk every night of waking up in ACDC. <laughs> I think the former
0: would be the rest selection there. Because the thing about this, it's sort of no choice, really, is it? Because the thing about superstardom, even if it's short-lived, it has a ripple effect nowadays that means you have a career that goes on forever. But Yeah,
2: but also it means, short-lived superstardom means you get to choose your own hours, I guess, whereas a, uh,
0: a job being second-division musician probably doesn't. No, no. absolutely not. And, uh, you know, so the like- likelihood is, if you've been a superstar, you might make an enormous amount of money in a short period of time and then it's kind of up to you whether you invest it and you can make it last and whether you can then eke out some kind of living on the on the, on the back of it, you know, and go around doing, I don't know, oldies tours or all these kind of options. You know, because try it out loud, you know. They, they, we've talked about this before on the, on the podcast, that nobody has a longer career expectancy nowadays nobody in the population has a longer career expectancy than a rock musician. Oh, that's true. This is a nobody.
2: There's no such this thing as short-lived superstardom, is there really?
0: That, well, I don't think there is. You know, you, I mean, you know Chuck, Chuck Berry or whatever was a superstar in 1959. Well, he's still pretty well known now. and He's, he's doing a, okay. He's well into his 80s. Yeah, you know? Still touring. Um, and so, so name me, there's a challenge to you listeners, name me a career that lasts longer than a rock musician's career. Now, the rock musician may have to put up with very reduced circumstances, undoubtedly, that's the case, uh, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't, it doesn't go on. You no. know what I mean? There's still some people who pay them to, you know, to play and to, and to record. I guess in other
2: fields of the arts, you get this kind of longevity as well with actors and, and, and artists, but no one expected pop musicians to go on forever. Absolutely
0: they? not at all. Not at all, you know, that, they, that these guys, you know, the Rolling Stones are still going. Where's everybody that the Rolling Stones went to school with? You know, they were all made redundant years ago. Yep. You know, that's, that's just a fact. So, um, Michael Taylor in Marple wants to, be known, wants to know if we'll be offering a column to Rod Little. <laughs> yeah, usual terms. Um, and, uh, and Blake Mitchell uh, wanted to know if we'd seen the study in The Guardian that confirmed that journalists are drunks. Did you read this?
2: I didn't read this. No, I can I can well believe it. That, but and I can believe it of any profession. I,
0: I think I, I, I let's be fair. Many journalists, you know, like you know, like a drink. But I think that applies to many doctors, many lawyers, you know, many shipyard workers. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's someone
2: who's a never been a journalist and b has uh, worked in a variety of different industries, all vaguely media related. Everyone likes to drink. And yeah. in England. All of them. There's no I, exception.
0: I worked for one year as a school teacher, and I'm telling you that they used to be in the pub car park quarter of an hour before the pub opened at the end of the day. My
2: first job was as an accounts clerk at a cosmetics factory.
0: Right. Avon Cosmetics.
2: Everyone there drank. It's just it's universal. It's, it's the British it's thing. If you have a job yeah.
0: in, in the UK you go out after work and you drink.
1: The word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life.
0: Um, so last night, Fraser, I was reading uh, a book, *The Fire Gospel* by Michelle Faber. Michelle Faber wrote a much admired uh, book called *The Crimson Petal and the White*. Have you come across that? That's, no. uh, that's a thumping good read. Anyway, this is just—I suppose you describe it as a novella. Uh, it's an entertainment, okay. And it, very readable. It is too. And I was—I was, uh, was really. It's about this this chap who, uh, this archaeologist who goes to Iraq, and accidentally stumbles upon the lost gospels. Okay? Is this
2: set in the, in the present
0: day? Set in the present day, but he finds Dead Sea Scrolls fashion, the lost gospels. Okay, which are then published and become a huge bestseller. So this guy becomes a best-selling author very quickly. In the book, That's I don't want to get bogged down in the book, but I I was I was reading this last night, and I'm going to read you a paragraph, OK? OK. This is where he finds himself in bed with um, somebody who works for a pub- his publisher. They breakfasted in bed, basking in the warmth of the sun streaming through the balcony window. Jennifer's laptop played John Coltrane's stellar regions through its inbuilt speaker. <laughs> At quite robust volume and with decent sound quality. Every now and then there was a slight stutter in the reproduction, but given the semi abstract nature of the material, nothing to spoil his enjoyment. Now, this just struck me as, as a classic case, one of those things that always kind of throws me when I read fiction, um, and, and, and it particularly occurs, it seems to me, in kind of detective fiction or thriller fiction is that authors nowadays feel that they have to flesh out their heroes by giving them musical tastes yes have you noticed this
2: yes i have yeah where have you noticed this? well i've read a book recently called all fur coat and i can't remember the name of the author but it was about a former as far as i can remember rock journalist solving a mystery and part of the daily setup of his life was describing the particular band's T shirt he would be wearing. Oh really? Yeah. So it was the fall one day and somebody else the next and then Spiral Carpets the third.
0: That kind of thing. See, I think it's the kind of thing that if you're writing fiction in the forties or fifties, it would never have occurred to anybody to do. Whereas nowadays everybody wants their heroes to be sort of a bit hip. Yeah? And they want the the readers to identify with them. Yes. And so they just they give them these tastes. Also,
2: well, Coltrane is interesting now as well, because that's kind of given out that kind of jazzy, 1950s, smoky room kind of ambience, isn't it?
0: Possib- well, possibly. I don't know this particular record. I'm a very selective John Coltrane consumer. You know, I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And I may not like stellar, re- stellar regions. I should go and have a listen to I it. I think you know, should, yeah. And, fi- and find <laughs> out. But it struck me that um, um, Ian Rankin does this a lot and yes. the, the, he, he, his detective is called Rebus it's been on television a lot hasn't it and Ian Rankin is a big music fan, and so Rebus is always listening to I don't know van Morrison or, or Bob Dylan it's very much that that kind of thing Salman Rushdie did this the, the novel recently which I didn't read the ground beneath her feet which is it, it's all about a piece of piece of rock music yes um, and we were talking about the and you were saying Kinky Friedman.
2: Yeah, who's the ultimate example? And that in fact he is a musician who's a detective.
0: Yeah, Kinky Friedman, the uh, you know the, the the famous legendary author of "Ridem Jew Boy," yes. and uh, and other other Jewish cowboy anthems, <laughs> still around, still going strong. Kinky, still running for governor of Texas whenever there's uh, whenever there's uh, an election. I- immensely colorful figure. He was doing this age- ages ago when it wasn't so common, but. Am I alone in just finding this? I find it vaguely jarring. I, I've never been able to. I, I've, I've read I've read really good books by really good de- de- detective novel authors and, and just general novels that that have this kind of thing in them. And mostly it just jars. to
2: me. Do you think it's like a film where they've got a musical expert in?
0: <laughs> no, I don't think. It'd be, no, I don't think it is like that at all. I think it's a kind of. It's a snobbery within the snobbery, isn't it?
2: I can see that, yeah. It,
0: and and who among us could resist it, you yeah. know, if we were doing it? If we were inventing, you know, a fictional detective, and I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has probably half thought about doing that at on one time or another.
2: He'd listen to Charles Mingus, not Christina Aguilera.
0: Well, <laughs> yes, yeah, in fact... It'd be far more convincing if you did listen to Christina Ruggiero, yes. you know, because you think well, at least at least he's got time for the detectiveing, yeah. you know, um, and and so what they do is they give their heroes their tastes, yes, and so you, you, it's just one of those instances where you where you see the strings being tweaked behind the puppet, in a way that that just jars for me, right. You know? Whereas I suppose other things, to be fair, you know, I read I read an Ian Fleming novel, uh, James Bond or whatever, and all the stuff about the cars or the design of the guns goes over my head because I don't know what they mean really. You know, cars but that's, a cars, as far as I'm concerned. But that's
2: part and parcel of, of being an Ian Fleming character is having those things. They're kind of necessary adornments. They're not embellishments in the way that music is for a detective.
0: Oh well, okay, I sp- that's that's fair. I, I suppose that some of these writers would say. That nowadays music is absolutely core to what these people are, and therefore you've got to you've got to say what it is that they they're listening to. But somehow it's kind of inauthentic because we don't spend our time listening to our favourites, do we? No, we, listen- we never listen to our favourites. <laughs> that's a really good point. We never listen to our favourites. We know all
2: that stuff. Why would we want to listen to it again?
0: Do you know that's a really good point. Was it somebody said this on the Word Blog recently? Um, but somebody talking, talking about the Beatles, I think, and the Beatles were are coming up for once again the remastering of the remastering of the remastering, and somebody said, "I don't need to hear those Beatles records anymore because I've got them in my head." Yeah, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. Then again, there can be great joy in hearing us as well. But uh, but this stuff we do have in our heads, we yeah. do, yeah, and and you sort of don't want to. You sort of don't want to spoil it by playing it a lot. When, of whenever
2: people ask me who my favourite band are, I always tell them it's Creedence Clearwater Revival.
0: That's a good answer. I
2: don't think I've listened to a CCR record in five yes, years. Yes, you
0: have, Fraser, because we played one in the office yeah, the other was, week. Yeah, I, have, I, I haven't one. chosen to do it. I played it to you. Yes, you did. Yes. Now that's uh, that, actually, to be fair, of all my old favourites, Creedence are probably the one I play more than any, because they—they they just they're a service serviceable noise, aren't they? You know? Yes. They've, there is no context in which they don't fit. They never feel to have gone too far no. in anything. was just a sublime you, economy. You
2: don't them. need to be in the mood. They just fit whatever Absolutely. you're
0: in. They are the mood, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. So, if anybody's got any examples, I'm interested in this, if anybody's got any examples of where they feel that music has been you know, woven into fiction convincingly in a way that didn't make them go mm, that's a bit pathetic. Let us know. You know, we'd like to. We'd like to know. I think. I think it's the kind of thing that the word "massive" would respond to. Don't I you? think so. Uh, I'm sure they've all got their own opinions. So, uh, you yeah, know, usual place, Word I did say I was going to tell you about the the travails of Annie Leibovitz. Yes, you did. Annie Leibovitz, being the world's most uh, prestigious uh, personality, celebrity, rock star photographer. Um, Has got into a terrible state, according to uh, what the papers in New York are saying. What's she done? Well, there but for the grace of God and many millions of dollars go all of us. Um, She has um, a couple of townhouses in Greenwich Village. Obviously very nice, you know, old places on some kind of terrace. And uh, she started um, making structural alterations to one of these. Oh, dear. In such a way that it affected the house next door that she didn't own, right? So in order to avoid presumably terrible legal penalties, she bought the other one, right? So in order to buy the other one, she's had to mortgage all her photographs and all her photographic rights for many years to come, okay, in, the home, in, in exchange for cash to pay for the buying of this other house. And this is not a good time no, to be over, overextended on property, is it? No. You know, so you, you pay the fortune for this extra place just at the time when values have it's so this like just isn't
2: just stuff that she's already taken photos of. It, this is the future as well.
0: Yeah, well, it's according to this piece I was uh, reading, uh, Liebevis has pawned the rights to every photograph she has ever or will ever take wow. to Art Capital Group, along with our homes in Rhinebeck, New York and Manhattan. If she pays back the $15 million that she got through doing this, she keeps the photos and the houses. If she doesn't, Art Capital gets them. But, uh, you know, so... Just because, to show. If you think you know, you think your problems over your flat in uh, off the Holloway Road. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got a problem. I don't, You're not in that league. Do you run up a lot of credit card debt, Fraser? No, I don't. Okay. Not, nor do I. No. Uh, Corny love. I only other...
2: um, got my first credit card about six months ago.
0: Really? Yeah. Come on, tell me.
2: Well, I, I was going. It was actually it was last year, and I was going on. Uh, Holiday, one of my ridiculous excursions. This was my ten-day train trip from London to Tehran. And I had to book a ferry across a lake in Turkey in the middle. And it was the first time in my life where the only way to pay for it was with a credit card.
0: So you've been to the United States without a credit card? Yes. 20 I thought, I thought they times? didn't allow people in without a credit card. I thought you couldn't function in America without a credit card. Because you could use cash.
2: I Debit card, cash machine.
0: Ah, oh, OK. Yes, cash machine changed everything, hasn't it? Yeah, I can remember the days when you used to <laughs> you used to get loads of travellers' checks before you went. To
2: the <laughs> I've never had a travellers' check. Know,
0: no, believe you me, you, you haven't missed anything. No. You know, they're an utterly tedious idea. Anyway, Courtney Love, American Express are seeking three hundred and fifty-two thousand and fifty-nine dollars and sixty-seven cents from Courtney Love on unpaid uh, American Express Gold cards.
2: What you've been buying?
0: Underwear, I imagine. I don't know. We leave it to to the listeners to speculate. <laughs> but you know, that's a significant sum, isn't it? Yes, it you is. Know? Yeah, and uh, and presumably it's been gathering interest by the uh, by the month. So they're they you know they're they're taking it very seriously. Anyway, um, next week we've got the one hundredth podcast. We have. Uh, which we do know, we're not going to tell everybody, people everything about it, but no. we do know it'll be on Wednesday, won't it? Yes, it will be on Wednesday. It, so it'll, it'll go out Wednesday afternoon, so make sure you're signed up to that. Yes. Okay. And you've got to ask yourself, what, how could we possibly be so sure that it was going to be on Wednesday? What might be the significance of that? Anyway, we we'll are not that. going to say, are we? We're not going to say. Uh, and also next week, when I, when we get round to editing it, I've got my um, my um, backstage podcast interview with Al Cooper, right? Uh, and also a feature in the magazine in the next issue of the magazine. Um, and I, I spoke to Al Cooper, who's uh, you know goes back to kind of Bob Dylan's band and played on live like a Rolling Stone and formed Blood Sweat and Tears and discovered Shaggy Otis and produced Leonard Skinner and did. All kinds of stuff. He's, you know, he's, he's a very distinguished, um, you know, long, long-serving officer of the of the rock and roll officer class, and um, he's uh, he can be prickly, Canal. Um, he was all right, he was fine, but he can be prickly. He was gentle with you. Well, <laughs> I, was, I think I was expecting prickliness, you know, so I wasn't I wasn't too perturbed. Um, but one of the things that makes him prickly, and I have some sympathy with him here, he says. He hates being interviewed by people who are, who are so young they don't know about the things that they're asking him about. Yes. Now, this is not a problem with me. <laughs> um, and it's just... I've been thinking about this more ever since. And um, it came to focus this morning when I was, I was listening. There was a thing on Radio 4 this morning about pirate radio. And I don't know who did it, but it's a guy... Too young to have remembered Pirate Radio. Probably wasn't born. Maybe, maybe not. You know, so when are we talking about Pirate Radio? 65, 66, 67, that kind of thing. And he was talking about the great romance of Pirate Radio and in the days when Swinging London was full of artists and rock stars and Girls the Girls and miniskirts and, and minis and Carnaby Street. I think, I think, Street think to and myself... This is not real. This is Austin Powers. You know, th- this, this, this is a version of the 60s that's been developed ever since. But it only exists in the media, that version, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's sort of more than that. Because he said, and I, here I'm going to sound like a terrible, you know, nitpicker. But he, they played a bit of John Peel doing the Perfumed Garden on Radio London. And the Perfumed Garden was what he did when he'd just come back from the States having been a DJ in Texas. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't sound like he subsequently sounded. He sounded more like a a regular DJ. And anyway, this guy presenting a script in the program said, you know, I was so impressed by John Peel, because he played, you know, on the Perfume Garden, he played Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band, and Loud Wainwright III, and... And I thought, (laughs) I don't think... (laughs) And I went and looked it up. It's pathetic, isn't it? Loud and Wade first album came out in 1970. You know? yeah. He can't have, you know, <laughs> he can't no. have heard that on, on, on John Peel's Perfume Garden. What it means is he's heard it since. You know what I mean? Or he's, he's read about it since. And the thing that struck me about that 60s pop music, and this is, I suppose, what Al Cooper is complaining about, it's become a little bit like the Second World War. That... <laughs> But the number of people who've learned about it through reading about it is far greater than the number of people who re- knew about it because they experienced it in, yep. any, in any way, you know what I mean? And this this, this massive body of interpretation and scholarship and humour and trivia just grows and grows and grows all the time, doesn't it? And it, Until it makes the real thing just sort of disappear. Well, you
2: know, It's just sorry, a, a poor parallel to draw, but I went on a guided tour of Auschwitz once. And uh, I was talking to the guide, and she obviously, she knew the camp backwards. She, she knew every inch of it. She knew everything that had ever happened. She could tell you the details of any prisoner you asked about. And I asked her how long she'd been doing it. And she'd been doing this, she'd been guiding tourists around Auschwitz for 18 years. Seven days a week for 18 years. So she'd been working at Auschwitz for five times as long as the camp was ever open. Currently.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yes. astonishing, and uh, yeah, probably people will be in future doing that for forty years, won't yeah. they? You know, you know, because it's kind of remembrance industry, whether it's serious things like Auschwitz or trivial things like like a Rolling Stone. Yes, it's just kind of grow and grow and grow, and and Al Kibber, is quite it's quite interesting. Is is insistent that Bob Dylan was not booed at Newport for playing electric he says, I should know I was there. Yeah. I was on stage playing the keyboard, you know. And he would remember it. Yeah, well, yeah. I suppose so. You know, although, to be fair, sometimes your memory get plays you false. And I've actually, we've got to mention this. Uh, recently, Word featured a big story about the history of the 50th <laughs> anniversary of Island Records. And um, Danny Baker, who is, is, is a reader, got in touch with Mark Ellen afterwards and said, well, what a distortion that was. What a disgrace that you missed out the thing that really founded Island Records. You know, the thing that they don't like to talk about. The thing that they made huge amounts of money from. You know, out of which they built this myth of, of themselves as, as rootsy and chic and whatever. They put out the first records by Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Right. And Mark sent this to me. He said, is that all right? And I thought... No, they didn't. Those came out on Manticore. So Danny and I then embarked on a furious exchange of emails. Uh, And, uh, of course, Danny eventually proved to me that, yes, they did come out on Ireland. Those those early records came out on Ireland. Oh, the shame. Well, which is kind of amusing, and neither here nor there. But what's interesting is that I had compiled my own memory in which they hadn't come out on Ireland. You know, so you don't. Well, that's the memory that fits with the island. That the island you want to
2: remember. No, isn't possi-
0: it? Possibly that's the case. Although I don't hold held any great you know torch for them, one way or another. But um, it, it, it's just interesting that that it's only when you go and talk to somebody who was there at the time as you were, and have a conversation, that you work out what really happened, rather than just what you've constructed. You know, later on. Yes. And everything in pop music nowadays, you know, things like punk rock. You know, that, you know, work that work out what really happened in punk rock from the m- massive accumulation of myth that grew up around it. You just know, just to speak to one of the ten people who were there. Well, possibly. to the possibly, and they and they and they may have quite happily spent the subsequent thirty years twining out whatever myths people wanted to hear. Yes. Whereas, the, I suppose they, you know, the Al Cooper's irascibility. Is is comes down to the fact that he's not prepared to go along with that. No. And if you say so, tell me about so and so, such and such a thing happening. He'll say it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm sorry to spoil your story. Yeah. You know. I'm sorry, sorry to spoil your TV program. But it didn't happen. You know, because people don't want to know that, do they? No. They want confirming whatever want it was. They want the myth. They want the myth. You know. Um, did you get that thing I sent you this morning about John Peters proposed uh, proposed autobiography in Hollywood? I, well, I just quickly. John Peters, legendarily known as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser and boyfriend, okay. yeah, many, many years ago. The character that, that the Warren Beatty part in Shampoo was based yeah. on, real Hollywood hustler, subsequently became a producer, ran a studio, you know, utter larger-the-life character, writes a, an outline for his autobiography. And it's a really detailed outline, proposal, upon which to get a huge advance from an American publisher. Yeah. And to give you an example of the kind of little, little bonbons that he put in this, <laughs> in this proposal, each one of which must be worth about $50,000, he says, you know, it contains his reminiscences about the famous women he has slept with, you know, including blah, 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 and lists about, you know, 20 very well-known female stars, right? He says, at least two of whom phoned him from the White House at various different points and said, I've just slept with the president. Wow. So you can imagine, this is you know this is a lighted match and a can of petrol. This yes. is you know he writes this incredibly detailed outline. He gets, unsurprisingly, a huge offer from a publisher. I think seven hundred thousand dollars advance to write it. And then the outline finds its way onto the interweb, right, and goes through Hollywood like a dose of salt. And suddenly, everybody mentioned in the outline. Um, particularly including the, the females list and all the things. Like, there's
2: lawyers involved the,
0: <laughs> <coughs> You can hear the rustle of legal papers, yes. you know, fully 100 miles outside of Hollywood. <coughs> everybody's getting ready, and everybody, everybody's threatening to say, if you ever, you know what I mean, you'll never work in this town again. Even
2: though this stuff is in the public domain now anyway.
0: Well he's going to uh, that's a very good point. I think but well, it's not properly published by a book publisher. no, you know it, it's a piece of paper that's just found its way onto a website, you know so there's nobody worth his while suing worth anybody's while suing. Whereas as soon as a publisher does it, there will be somebody worth well, they, worth they should a while do it suing. with like they've
2: done with the new um, David Lynch and Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse Project, which is this uh, book stroke CD that's coming out without the CD because EMI and Danger Mouse are disagreeing about something. Well, they probably can't clear it. So they're they're including a blank uh, CD within the book and advising you to go and download the uh, (laughs) music from the internet. They do the same here.
0: Well, maybe John Peters will do the same thing. I don't know. But anyway, and obviously, John Peters is really taken aback and has has had to reject the offer from the publisher. Of course. And pretty much putting it on ice. And so... Well,
2: the publisher will be withdrawing that offer anyway. I, I suppose so.
0: Here's my slightly unkind interpretation. I think John Peters has sat down with his ghostwriter and written a proposal, and they have adjusted the contrast and the, and the brightness, you know. Yes. A little bit more than they needed to, and I think he's he's... He's made up stuff that he didn't really need, need to make Those up. Those calls from the White House never came. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know... um and so now he's having to just tiptoe away from the project, you know, which is, uh, it's a very rare case of, of somebody, you know, sort of talking such a good fight that they then have to retreat really quickly, you know, yeah. they, if I only he had written PR. something milder, I would have got for half a million dollars. But he wouldn't get the PR he's getting now, isn't he? No, it? maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe there still is a big deal in the, uh, you know, in the toned down version of it, so... Watch this space. There'll be a link to that, I think, on the, uh, on the newsletter. When do we send the newsletter later today? Yes. Well, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, so, 100th podcast uh, next Wednesday. Uh, you there. can be part of it. If you, you can w- be part of it still. Uh, if you, you dial the
2: following number, it's 07092. And then my birthday, 050466. Oh. And leave a message, and we'll broadcast it on the podcast next week.
1: This podcast was brought to you by The Word.